Crossing family, I love you so stinking much. This past week, it was uh, a part-time job responding to all of you who are reaching out and saying, hey, how can we help this person that you read their letter from last week who's a part of the Missouri Correctional System? How do we get this thing dialed in so they can get baptized? I want you to hear me say this so that way I don't get any more emails, but I love the fact that this is how you guys were wired. We've been working on it. We are working on it, and hopefully one of these days we'll be able to make that happen. We're navigating stuff with parole officers and all that stuff to be able to make it a reality. But there was a whole bunch of you, and I just kind of love that that's the heartbeat of our church, which was basically like, I'm on my way. Can you tell me where they're at? And we just tap the brakes. We're going to get it figured out, and I can't wait to be able to celebrate that moment with you. Before we jump all the way into the message, I want to spend a little bit of time in prayer. I want to pray over two things. First thing is there are two churches today. One is 242 Church up in Michigan. The other one is Mountain View Christian Church in Maryland. They are both starting the sermon series, Weeds in My Garden. And I know the kind of hope and help that that could bring in their congregation. I'm excited about that. So I want to be praying for them. I also want to spend a little bit of time praying for all of you who there is somebody in your life that you love, that you care about, that is, means a lot to you, that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ yet. You might be at one of our locations sitting by yourself because your spouse doesn't come. You might be uh, parents who have fond memories of walking into church, holding hands with your kids, but when your kids moved out of the house, it seems like they moved away from their faith. You might be in a spot where you have brothers and sisters or neighbors, friends, coworkers, and you see their life spiraling out of control and you know that the thing they need the most is an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you, at times you feel like you're losing hope. You feel like you're running out of prayers. And it seems like, you know, maybe one day, but right now it feels like a relationship with Jesus Christ is a long way off. And I just wanna, uh, I don't normally do this, but uh, the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson um, he just kind of took and made it a little bit more conversational. He has a great way of articulating 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is how he uh, says it. Don't overlook the obvious here, friends. With God, one day is as good as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. God isn't late with his promise as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Here's what I want you to know. God is with you in the waiting. He is with you in the hoping. And he is with you in a desire for your friends and your family members to come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me pray with you. God, right now, I just want to pray over Tony and Ben as they lead their churches in this Weeds in My Garden sermon series. I pray that as people reach out to their friends and family members and invite them to a sermon series on mental health, that as they walk into the doors of that church, that there are all kinds of difference makers ready to love on them and care for them and offer them the help and the hope that they need. God, I pray that you would give the people in that church the courage to be honest about what they're wrestling with and that you give the leaders and staff an opportunity and wisdom to speak into those moments and that this sermon series would not just grow their church, but it would also bring people into the church who thought that all was lost. I also just want to ask you, God, to be with us as we try to 
be a light in a dark place to the people that we love the most. God, remind us consistently that you love them more than we do, that you care about them more than we do, that you want them in a relationship with you more than we do. God, give us the wisdom to know when uh, to say something and how to say something. Give us the boldness to speak your name clearly. Give us the courage to step into difficult situations and give us an unwavering hope as we try to be patient. In your name I pray, amen. I wanna welcome those of you joining online and inside and those of you at our various locations. Today's message is really simple. There has to be a place that believes that Jesus still changes people. There has to be a place that believes that Jesus still changes people. If we're gonna make this region the hardest place on planet Earth to get to hell from, this is something that you and I have to believe to the very core of our being. I'm in an interesting season right now because my boys have come to the conclusion that I am not the strongest man in the world. They've been on this journey for a while. Fortunately, God made me 6'6", 285 pounds, and so I've been able to go longer than those of you who are only five foot tall, right? I had a lot more credibility for a longer period of time. But there's two guys who go to our church, and uh, Sam and Max, they're brothers, and my boys are like, yeah, they can, they could take you. And I said, you're 100% right. They'd snap me like a toothpick. And that's really kind of how they normally operate. The question is, can you take them? And I just need you to know, if my boys have met you on the way home, they've asked the question, could you take him? And most of you've lost. Um, that's just kind of how, that's, that's what matters to them, is if my dad gets in a fight with you, no matter how old you are, ma'am, is my dad going to win? <laughs> and they just got to know. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I knew the day was coming, but it hurts me a little bit that my boys don't think that I could take everybody. And God, as our Heavenly Father, I wonder, I just wonder if it messes with his heart a little bit when we begin to doubt in his ability to change a person's life. And maybe over time we have lost a little bit of that belief. When we talk about the spiritual spectrum, that every single person is on this spiritual spectrum. On one end you have people who are hostile to the faith and then maybe you have those who have questions about it or people who are open to faith but they're not committed yet. And then you have those who are just beginning their relationship with Jesus and you have those who are uh, taking their very first steps and our understanding is getting developed as we move further to the right. And I need you to know this, Jesus loves absolutely everybody on this spiritual spectrum. I don't want you thinking that because you're a plus two, he loves you more than a minus two. No, 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 no. Jesus loves absolutely everybody on this graph because, hear me, uh, your value is intrinsic to you. It was breathed into you. It was put in you before you took your first breath because you were made by God and that's what gives you value. You don't all of a sudden have value when you find a relationship with Jesus. Everybody. That means if Jesus loves everybody on this graph, then you and I have to love absolutely everybody on this graph. However, our movement to the right, which is God's desire, is not guaranteed. Am I right? If you were to track your spiritual development over time, I'm willing to wager you've had moments where you've moved this way, and then you've had moments where you took a couple steps back. Part of that's because we have a spiritual enemy who is trying to always distract us and trap us and 
pull us back and put us in situations of extreme hurt and unanswered questions and painful experiences and we can get hung up on them and sometimes they can cause us to stall out or to fall back. Question, where would you put the people that you are trying to reach on this spiritual spectrum? What number would you give them? What number would you give your friend? your neighbor, your family member. If we are going to make this the hardest place on planet Earth to get the help from, we have our work cut out for us. And recent reports show that those who profess faith in Jesus, that their commitment to him is diminishing. Uh, Americans who claim to attend church regularly has dropped from 49% in 2009 to 20% in 2022. The number of Americans, people like you and me, who read their Bible regularly has dropped from 50% to 25% in the last 12 years. And there's all kinds of other factors and indicators that show that we are really in a free fall. And it's only getting worse. Here's why this matters to me and why it should matter to you. Not only are there more and more people that need to be reached with the good news of Jesus Christ, it appears that there's less and less of us who are actually doing the reaching. So there's a bigger need than ever, and there's less people reaching than ever. Something is happening where people are getting distracted and pulled away. Now, you need to hear me say this. I believe that right now, at this point in human history, There is not a better time to be alive and not a better time to be on mission for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that we are uniquely equipped, that Jesus' spirit is still alive and active. I still believe that Jesus can change people. He can change plus twos and plus threes, just so you know. Jesus doesn't just want to change the minus uh, ones and the minus twos. He wants to do a work wherever you might put yourself on this graph. I still believe that there is a difference that you and I can make, that Jesus' spirit is just as good today as it was when it was released in the book of Acts, that I still believe no matter how messed up you may have been or no matter how messed up you are, that Jesus can still change people. And I need to make sure that that goes all the way deep down in the core and the soul and the heart's of this church, and I'm gonna show it to you. Everybody say chapter seven. Chapter seven. Here's what's happening. The the church is growing, and a problem arises, and the apostles are like, look, we're busy. We gotta preach the word of God. We can't neglect these duties, so if this problem's gonna get sorted, we need a group of people to sort it, and so they picked a group of people to navigate the problem, and one of the people they picked was a guy by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was a good dude, and he started preaching in some, when some opportunities arose. And the Jewish people got frustrated about him talking about how the Jewish people had killed uh, Jesus. And he was going, well, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, they pulled him in front and of, the, of, the, of the system, and they started yelling and screaming at him, and he started preaching back, and then this is what happened. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Now in the Bible, stoning somebody is when you take them outside and you throw rocks at them until they die. Being stoned in the, in the Bible is completely different than being stoned as you guys perceive it, okay? <laughs> Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So uh, Saul, first time he shows up, 
He's holding everybody's coat so they can get a better throw at trying to kill somebody. Where would you put him on the spiritual spectrum? That's how he gets introduced, right? Let's keep going. Everybody say chapter 8. Chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged both men and women and put them in prison. Okay, where did you have him? Now where did you put him? He starts off holding the coats in chapter 7 of people who are trying to kill a follower of Jesus. Now at the beginning of chapter 8, he is going house to house dragging men and women and putting them in jail for their faith in Jesus Christ. Where would you put him on the spiritual spectrum? Everybody say chapter 9. Chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what Christians were originally described as, the way. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. These people were going, they're followers of the way of Jesus. They live the way that Jesus would want them to live. He's saying, I've been doing this in Jerusalem, but I want to take this on the road. I want to do a tour. I want to go to Damascus and put men and women in jail there that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's going, I, I've done it in Jerusalem. Now I want to go to Damascus. I want to do what I've been doing in Jerusalem and Damascus. And then I really don't trust the penal system, uh, the prisons for the men and women in Damascus. So I'm going to take them back to Jerusalem to put them in jail where I can make sure that they truly suffer. This is how he shows up in chapter Nine. At this point, on the spiritual spectrum, where would you put him? Some of you right now be going, Clayton, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I need a couple more numbers on the left-hand side of your graph. Because I gave my mother-in-law minus five. And um, I don't necessarily want to put her in the same camp <laughs> as we just put Saul. And I'm also not willing to move my mother-in-law to a minus four. She deserves the minus five. So I need some place to put Saul. Where would you put him on the spiritual spectrum? It's not good, right? I highly doubt any of us know somebody who is as bad as Saul. I don't know anybody. I can't think of somebody with a lower number than him. But look, out, look at what happens in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 6. As he, this is Saul, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's an interesting question. Who are you, Lord? Uh-oh, looks like Saul's moving to the right. Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into this city and you will be told what you must do. Three things to note here. Did you see them? All right, here's the first one. Jesus takes ownership of the suffering of his people. Remember what I told you on Christmas Eve services and what I told you last week? Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you in the suffering. He is with you in the pain. He is in the pain of his people. Second thing, Jesus takes it personally how his people are treated. 
Why do you persecute me? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So I was like, hold on a second. I was just picking on men and women. And Jesus is like, no, 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 man. When you were picking on them, you were picking on me. Let that be a reminder this year as you treat people, as you interact with people, as you talk to people and how you talk about people, Jesus takes the way his people are treated personally. Not only is he with you in the pain, he is with the people that you are causing pain. How you work, how you treat your boss, how you shine as a light or don't shine as a light. As you get revenge for the grievances and the challenges that you face, hear me, Jesus is not just with you, he is with them too. Third, did you notice that Jesus is making a move on behalf of a minus five. We tend to think that if you do enough right things, if you do enough good stuff, that God will move on your behalf. If I get religious enough or spiritual enough or right enough, Jesus starts showing up once you level up to a plus three. But here's, uh, here's Jesus moving on behalf of a minus five. But isn't that how it was with you? That he moved on your behalf before you ever moved towards him? Didn't he show up in the busted up places of your life before you ever showed up for him? That Jesus looks out and he sees a minus five and goes, yeah, I could do something. I could do something even with him. Look what happens in chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Disciple means a follower of Jesus. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Looks like Saul is on a trajectory, doesn't it? I mean, he was a minus five, but now he's praying. People can change. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Um, I wonder what Ananias' thought was about what his conversation with God would have been. Like when God started answering his prayers, I bet he wasn't expecting this conversation. I'm guessing if God were to answer your prayers, it would be something like this. And the lottery numbers you're going to want to write down for the Powerball are, hey, there's a job coming up, and it's got great benefits and great retirement and great vacation time. You're going to want to go to this house and talk to this person on this day, and you are going to get the job you've always wanted, right? Here's Ananias waiting for God to answer his prayers, and God starts speaking to him, and this is what he says, I want you to go to, um, to a house on Straight Street to meet a guy named Saul. And then Judas, I mean, then Ananias is kind of like, hey, listen, um, uh, God, you know he's a minus five, right? I mean, I know, you've been, I know you've been pretty busy. You may not remember what this guy's like. He's going house to house, putting people in prison. Not just the men, God, the women too. And I'll be honest with you, I've been hiding out. And if I go to 
Judas's house on Straight Street, um, I might go to jail too. And I know it's crazy. Your, your prayer inbox is incredibly full, and you've been navigating, you know, keeping the world in balance and the, the, the solar system and all that. You might have missed it. But this guy's not on our team. And God's like, yet. He's not on our team yet. You see, you just know Saul from chapter 7. And you just know Saul from chapter 8. And you just know Saul from the beginning of chapter 9. But I'm still writing chapter 9. I'm still moving on his behalf. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Uh, Ananias is looking and, it's, and he sees a minus five. And God sees a chosen instrument. Ananias is looking at Saul and he sees a persecutor of the church. And God is saying, I see a future preacher for the church. Look what happened 17 and 18. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, we're going to circle back to that. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. A couple things to note here. What was it about Ananias's walk with the Lord that made God know that he could trust Ananias to go to Judas's house on Straight Street to talk to a minus five? What was it about the spirit of Ananias that made God go, yep, he'll go and carry out my mission? He'll talk to the person that everybody else has written off. What was it about the spirit of Ananias? I don't know what it is. I'm just praying for that spirit in our church. I'm praying for that spirit in me, and I'm praying that spirit in us. If we are gonna make this region the hardest place on planet Earth to get to hell from, it is gonna require a bunch of us filled with the spirit of Ananias that God would look down and say, yep, I can entrust you to go to somebody that nobody else would go to. I've gotta entrust that you will have the spirit of Ananias and you would talk to the person that everybody else has written off, that you would be a group of people, that I would be a part of a group of people that would say, there is nobody too far gone to the love of God, the redemptive work of God, that believes deep down inside that God can change anybody, that Jesus still changes lives. Oh, we, we need this spirit, just so we're clear. Uh, we need it here in Quincy at 48th Street and at 929, but we also need some people with the spirit of Ananias in Macomb and in Kirksville. We need some people with the spirit of Ananias in Pike County and in Hannibal. We need it in Lima and Mount Sterling. We need it in Monmouth and Jacksonville and Keokuk. We need people who don't write off the people that Jesus is trying to reach. There needs to be a group of people. There has to be a place where people believe that Jesus still changes people. Here's the second thing that you notice. Ananias shows up to the house on Straight Street, and he calls Saul 
brother. When I was doing my study, that caught me off guard. I was like, this can't be what I think it is. And so I went all the way down into uh, the Greek, and I was like, are we sure that there's not something weird going on here? But no, the word that, that Ananias uses when he addresses Saul is brother. And what do you think brother means? It means exactly what you think it means. It means brother. It's the same word when they're talking about the familial relationships of James and John and Peter and Andrew. It's the same word that when they ask him, uh, when they're talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, my brothers and sisters are those who do the word of the Lord, who keep my commandments. Those are my brothers and sisters. Think about the compassion of Ananias showing up at a guy who's probably been putting the people that Ananias loves in jail, both the men and the women, and he walks into the room and he says, Brother Saul. Here's what he's saying. The very same blood that covers me apparently is about to cover you. And if the blood of Jesus covers me and the blood of Jesus is going to cover you, that makes us family. That makes you my brother in Christ. And can you imagine being Saul and hearing that? He has to wonder, what's this guy doing at the house? He has to have heard about what I've been doing. He knows I've hurt people that he cares about. Maybe he's going to show up and get his pound of flesh. He's going to reclaim his rights. He's going to punish me for what I've done. And Saul is waiting there, and all of a sudden Ananias comes in. I wonder what it was like when Ananias said, Brother Saul. And just like that, a guy who was a minus five in chapter seven and a minus five in chapter eight and a minus five at the beginning of chapter nine gets baptized. So it's at least a zero. Look what happens, verses 19 through 27. We're still in chapter nine. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So now he is preaching in the very place he used to show up to take people and put them in prison. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the minus five? Isn't this the guy who was raising havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The very people who had authorized him to put Christians in jail is now proving to them that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he's alive. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Yep. The very people that, had gone, that Saul had gone to to get authorization to put all the Christians in jail are now having to take the one that they commissioned and come up with a conspiracy to try and kill him because they're having to deal with the fact that Jesus can change minus fives. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They're going, look, man, that's a great idea. This SEAL Team 6 stuff, we're on to it. We've got a traitor. 
Here's what he did, he couldn't find enough people. So now he's pretending to be a Jesus follower so he can show up and preach at our church service and then he's gonna get everybody's name, get our addresses, he needs to come to our house and he's gonna take us to jail, both men and women. The church people are like, man, fool me once. <laughs> no, but look what happens. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Where would you put Saul in the spiritual graphic now? Where would you put him? I mean, wasn't it just a few moments ago we had him at a minus five? Wasn't it just a few moments ago that he got baptized and we moved him into the positives? And now he is preaching the gospel everywhere even though it might cost him his life. In chapter 7, he was a minus 5. In chapter 8, he was a minus 5. And at the beginning of chapter 9, he's a minus 5. But now you can't stop noticing God's working in his life. God's changing him. And i got to be honest with you. The chapter 7 of my life and the chapter 8 of my life and the beginning of chapter 9 of my life were pretty rough. I'm guessing they were for you too. If we were to pass the mic around at all of our different locations and you were to talk about what the Lord delivered you from, I think some of us would be amazed at what he delivered you from. I'm sure you probably caught a couple of people looking at you funny going, that can't be so-and-so, is it? Because they remember you from chapter 7 when you were in junior high. And they remember you from chapter 8 when you're in high school or college or the bars or whatever it was that you used to do. And I'm not throwing judgment, I'm just saying, you know you. you, you you're aware. There's people from my high school who go to our church. Whew. I'll be honest with you, I know me. I wouldn't go to my church because of what I did in high school. <laughs> you just don't know me. And I remember what it was like in the early parts of chapter 9 in my life. Do you remember what it was like in the early chapters of 9 in your life? And then all of a sudden, in just like 30 verses, God got a hold of your life and absolutely changed it, turned it around, breathed new life into it, gave it purpose and meaning and significance. You see, God was still writing my story and he's still writing yours. That's why, as a church, we need to be in people's corners as they make their moves to the right, as they move from minus fives to minus fours and minus fours to minus threes and plus ones to plus twos and plus twos to plus threes. We have to be in their corner. You're gonna see uh, and hear a lot of in your corner. It's at the bottom of my emails. It's a part of some of the initiatives that we've been doing here as a church because as a church, we have to be a place that is in people's corners as they take their step of faith. We have to be. Just like Barnabas and Ananias were in the corner of Saul as he was on his spiritual journey. We have to be willing to come alongside of them and celebrate them and, and coach them and resource them and listen, we can't fight their spiritual battles, but we can definitely be in their corner while they fight them. Because just because you're a minus five today doesn't mean that God can't move in a miraculous way tomorrow. 
that no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, we have to believe that Jesus can change you and that he is moving on your behalf. Uh, put up the spiritual spectrum again for just a second. When you look at that spiritual spectrum and the minus fives all the way to the plus fives, do we still have it in there? Can you go up? There we go. I want to be clear. Some of you might be going, but Clayton, where would you put yourself on this spiritual graphic? I'm going to be real careful about how I ever answer what's over here. Uh, because, well, some of you kind of like this because you're judgy. You kind of like picking where you're going to put people. And if you're going like, hey, I'm a Clayton, I'm a plus five, like I'd like, I'd like you to know that too. I'm going to tell you about it after service. I'll send you an email about how I'm a plus five. Here's what I want you to know. Uh, the people who I would put here are not people who show up for church every so often, give, you know, some, every so often, read their Bible and watch Fox News. Like this is not, this is not my version of a plus five uh, Christian. The people who I would put in the plus fours and fives categories are people who are deeply invested in people coming to a relationship with Jesus. And so if you can't draw a line from where you're at spiritually to you helping personally someone navigate their spiritual journey, you might not be as far to the right as you would like to think. Second thing I'll tell you, because I love you. Are we still good? Because I love you. What makes us a plus four and a plus five is a rock-solid belief that Jesus can change people. And you still cling to it, that you still believe deep down inside that the same spirit that changed Saul can change your friend, can change your neighbor, can change your family. People who still believe that Jesus is moving and alive and active and trying to bring people unto himself and are joining him in the mission. If we are going to make this the hardest place on planet earth to get to hell from, it's going to require some people who look an awful lot like you and me to believe deep down inside that Jesus still changes people. There has to be a place. And I say it's here. And I say it's with us. And I say it's now. We're moving to a time of decision. Saul ends up having such a radical transformation, he changes his name to Paul. You may have heard a lot about him in the Bible because uh, there's a lot about, in the Bible about a guy by the name of a, the Apostle Paul. In fact, this minus five ends up getting the privilege and opportunity by God to be a part of writing the books of your Bible. And you might be going, maybe God gave him a page. No. Okay, well, maybe God gave him a book. Well, books. Check this out. This guy who was a minus five that everybody else would have written off, uh, he wrote the book of Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and depending on where you land on the spiritual spectrum, uh, well, not really on the spiritual spectrum, on uh, whether or not he wrote Hebrews. Here's what that means. Most of the New Testament was written by this guy. Here's what this means. Almost every single week at our church, we talk about, uh, we use scripture. And almost every single week, one of the scriptures that we use was, is out of one of those books. Which means that every single week, God uses a minus five to build your faith. Crazy. 
You're going, well, I mean, are any of these verses good? Oh, yeah. Listen, keep in the context what I just told you about Saul. It just changes how you hear him when he writes Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The guy who was a persecutor who became a preacher, who had to find a hole in the wall and get lowered in a basket. It's when he says, if God's for you, who can be against you? It's this one. Romans 5.8, one of my top ten favorite ones. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It hits different when you know he's the one who wrote it. Because he's going, I was a minus five. And God moved on my behalf. When you get to Philippians chapter four, verse 19, and you hear him say, and this same God who has taken care of me will supply all of your glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. When you find yourself in 2 Corinthians, like my favorite verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It hits different when you know that he was the one who wrote it. He's saying, look, the old me is gone. The minus five in me is dead. I've been made new in him. That's the gospel message. Paul's going, that's me. That's what he did in me. The, you wouldn't believe when you read the, the New Testament that he let me write it. Because if you'd have known me when I was in chapter seven or chapter eight or the beginning of chapter nine, you wouldn't have believed that God would allow me to write the book that comes right after it. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you all the way through this chunk of scripture that he leaves in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, because it has something for those of you who are saved and those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. So come here. Verse 18. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, Christians, are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Check out how we do this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what Paul's saying. I've been made new. How did the, the old going away and the new coming into my life, how did that happen? He said, well, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. So here's what happened in my life, and here's what happened in your life, and if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, here's what could happen for you. God took all of Clayton's sin, all of it, all the sin that I've committed in my past and all the sins that still are ahead of me. He took all of it and he took it off of my life, off of my shoulders, and he laid it on Jesus on the cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, who had never sinned, became my sin on the cross. And in doing so, God was able to take the perfection of Jesus and pull it off of his shoulders 
put it on mine. So through the cross, I get treated like Jesus as if I'd never sinned. And Jesus got treated like me and carried my sin. Jesus got my punishment so I could have Jesus' reward. And God did all of that on my behalf before I ever moved in his direction. God did all of that before I ever gave a dollar to the church or to advance the mission. He did it before I ever showed up for church. He did it before I ever read my first Bible verse, before I ever memorized one, before I ever became a preacher, before I ever started to serve. He did all of that before I took my first breath. And he didn't just do that for me. He did it for you. It is a free gift. It is a grace that he has poured out on your life. Everything else we do is a response to that. We're going, if he did that in my life, I'm going to give my life to him. It's a response to, not an earning of. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I would love a relationship with Jesus. I just got to get my act together. I need you to know you stand 0% chance of getting your act together. You just do, 0%. Because uh, you can't save you, only Jesus can. And you have, it has already been done, it's time for you to take hold of it. And so if you're here today and you've never started a relationship with Jesus Christ, in a few moments, when the people around you stand and some of them come up to the steps, I'm gonna encourage you to go over to the baptistry and there's gonna be somebody there who wants to talk with you about what that relationship looks like. To the rest of you, the Christians in the room, come here for just a second. This is what's been done on our behalf. And because of that, God has given you and me the ministry of reconciliation. So here's what I'm gonna ask you. Who are the people in your life that you know need a relationship with Jesus? And you might be going, man, this is so good because I can't wait for somebody else to talk to my friends about Jesus. He gave us, you and me, the ministry of reconciliation. Maybe you'd come up and you'd just pray for them. Maybe you'd pray for God to give you some words or create some opportunities for you to point them. Maybe you just need him to just rekindle inside of you a desire that deep down inside he can change people, that Jesus still changes people. Because maybe you've started to think, well, God moves in everybody else's life, but he's probably never going to move in theirs. Would you stand with me? God, we're coming to you because we either believe or we want to believe that your spirit is still moving, that your word is still active, that it's not over, that you're not done, that you are still writing our story. And God, we're coming to you, asking you to increase our faith, increase our boldness. God, to the brothers and sisters that are in this room that don't have a relationship with you yet, that haven't trusted you yet, God, thanks so much for bringing them here. Help us to love them and lead them well. And God, give them the courage to at least start asking the questions that have been rolling around in their head. God, solidify in us that there is nobody too far gone, that there's no sin and no sinner that you can't save. In your name I pray, amen.